all this morning. Some of you a little more tan than you were last Sunday. Pretty decent little crowd here for the weekend after 4th of July. Glad to have you guys here. If you're, um, if you're here for the first time this morning, maybe uh, wondering what you've gotten yourself into, what you've stepped into as we gather in this place, uh, we're currently working our way through a book of the Bible that churches love to run in the direction of, the book of Ecclesiastes. We're currently in the midst of a sermon series that are, will carry us through the month of August, a deep dive into a as I've said from the beginning of this series, one of the most criticized, complex, and confusing books in, in all the Bible, really. It's a book that, that many people are drawn to, grateful for the honesty it, it brings in capturing uh, what it is to be human, in a sense. A book that other people are happy to keep it at arm's length with its pessimistic outlook and interpretive difficulties. My guess is that most of you are, are either happy that we're working our way through this book or happy that we're halfway done at this point. Neutrality, I thought about this this week. Neutrality regarding the book of Ecclesiastes is like a leprechaun riding a unicorn. You just won't find it. You either love this book or you hate this book, which begs the question, why dive into it? Why not? There's 66 books of the Bible. We have not covered the other 65. Why dive into such a polarizing book of the Bible that could potentially cause half of you to go, peace out? Why do that? Why not play it safe? It's a question that, that I brought up each and every week of this series and a question that I've sought to answer from the very beginning, knowing that, that many people perhaps need a little nudge to, to dip their toe into these, these waters. And so from the very beginning of the series, in answer to that question, why study this book of the Bible together as the church, I've said this. One, it's honest. The book of Ecclesiastes captures the frustration of living in a fallen, broken world, perhaps better than any other book of the Bible. It's incredibly relatable, at least to those of us who, who know what it is to have tasted our tears. It's secondly, course shaping, meaning that it, it gives us a window into the futility of life lived in the pursuit of meaning apart from God so that we might not make the same mistake as the author ourselves and thus it has the power to change the very trajectory of our lives. Thirdly, it's apologetic, meaning that it, it isn't afraid to ask the hard questions, the questions of human existence that philosophers have grappled with for ages, helping us to see just how incredibly unromantic and irrational it is to consider life apart from God. Fourthly, it's doxological, meaning that it, it helps us to worship the living God, the one who reigns above the sun, the one who brings meaning where there would otherwise be meaninglessness. And then lastly, it's practical, teaching us how to view and approach things that are part and parcel to everyday living, proving it to be a book that's not only timeless, but timely. And so for those reasons, among many others, we've committed the, this summer to walking through this book of the Bible together as God's people gather, trusting the God who reigns above the sun to all the more satisfy us in himself as a result of having gone through this study. And so with that said, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter five, verse eight is where we'll start this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and, and open up to this morning's passage. You can take that Bible uh, with, with you as you leave if you don't own a Bible or the translation that you brought in with you this morning is maybe a little difficult to, to track with. Let me go ahead and pray for us and, and, uh, and we'll dive in because we've got a little bit of ground to cover this morning. God, I thank you for divine revelation without which we would be left to nothing more than human speculation. 
as to who you are, what you're like, what the the purpose of our existence is, whether there is any meaning in this world, whether there's anything beyond this life on the other side of death. God, you've given us answers to those questions in the scriptures so that we're not left to human speculation. I'm grateful for this morning's passage and the hope that it brings to all of us in this space, both to the, the person who perhaps comes in doesn't love and follow you, Jesus, and, and those of us who would profess to be Christians coming in this morning, uh, who, as we will see momentarily, desperately need to be re-evangelized. Thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. Certainly darkened waters, but on the other side, helping us to see the beacon of light that is the gospel shine all the more brightly for having entered these waters. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to see Help us to hear, help us to receive with our hearts that which you have for us this morning. God, I'm desperate for you to move and to stir, to give me a feeling sense of the very things that I preach this morning because like those gathered not on this stage standing before me, I'm as desperate for this truth that we are about to dive into as anyone in this space. So I thank you in advance for what you're going to do in and through us in these moments to come with your word uh, sitting before us. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. So for those who may be joining us for the first time, it's, it's the weekend after the 4th of July, which means that we have a number of people on hiatus. The title of this sermon is Money Can't Buy Everything, but it can buy a vacation, which is why we're a little low on attendance this morning. Um, but, but along with that, there's some of you who are visiting family in town, and perhaps you're coming in going, okay, middle of a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, what do I do with that? Should I just check out, zone out, pull out my favorite app on my phone for the next, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever it may be, or should I actually engage this? Let me try to draw you in with a little bit of a a previously on Ecclesiastes sort of recap. The book of Ecclesiastes begins with both a statement and a question. Chapter one, verse two, right out of the gate, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That word vanity is the Hebrew word hebel. Shows up uh, more than 30 times throughout the book. It means literally vapor or mist, like a, like a breath disappearing off of your lips on a cold day within a moment from leaving your lips or smoke rising from a fire and disappearing into the night sky. It's a word that, that carries with it a number of possible meanings meant to communicate a number of things pertaining to human existence. For one, that life is elusive. When you try to grasp it, it slips through your fingers. It's a bit incomprehensible. We can't understand everything about what it is to even be human and to live in this world. Um, It can mean life is momentary. Here today, gone tomorrow. As James says in his writing, chapter four, verse 14, you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It can mean life is futile, a chasing after the wind, never able to, to truly find happiness and satisfaction in this world. As a way of of saying that everything is as meaningless as it possibly could be, he uses that superlative vanity of vanities. Kind of like the the phrase when you see it in scripture, holy of holies or king of kings, lord of, of lords. In other words, he's saying, when I use the phrase vanity, the word vanity in this book of the Bible, I really mean what I'm saying. I'm not sure that there's a, a more pessimistic introduction in all of scripture, to be honest with you. 
It's not like the book of Hebrews where the author begins by declaring Jesus to be the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature, this, this high Christology, this exciting beginning. No, this book begins with vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The author leads out with that statement, and and for those of us who don't immediately run for the hills, he proceeds to follow that incredibly pessimistic introduction with with a question, one that he grapples with for the better part of the book. Chapter one, verse three. What does man gain, he asks, by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Another way to ask it, what's the return on investment? It's an economic question. What does it profit a person? What are we working so hard for in this world? The author of Ecclesiastes is not looking for an answer. It's rhetorical. The under the sun answer is nothing. It gains a person absolutely nothing. As I've mentioned each and every week of this series, that phrase under the sun has everything to do with unlocking the meaning of the book, which is why I keep coming back to it over and over again. I don't wanna take anything for granted in assuming that we're all on the same page as we move forward. That phrase under the sun shows up roughly 30 times throughout the book itself, and it's just as complex in its very meaning, uh, various meanings as the word vanity. It can mean life as we know it in a fallen world, that things just aren't as they should be. We're surrounded by a number of things that make this world sad. We long for something better. It can mean a view of the world absent of God, a this is all there is outlook, that there's nothing above the sun. That John Lennon language, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. The author of Ecclesiastes takes that philosophical outlook on a test drive, you might say, showing us where that kind of thinking actually leads us when you trace it to its ultimate end. Under the sun can mean a belief in God, but one that falls short of the the fullness of who God is as shown in, in the rest of scripture. So that when you see the phrase fearing God in Ecclesiastes, we talked about this last week, it's not one and the same with the fear of the Lord in the book of Proverbs. That the author of Ecclesiastes, when he talks about fearing God, he uses God's name Elohim, which is a more general creator God title. Um, Whereas in the book of Proverbs, fear of the Lord is a fear of Yahweh. Yahweh being an intimate covenant relating God, one who relates with his people and fights for their cause. The author of Ecclesiastes doesn't talk that way about God. There's no fatherhood and sonship language in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's no coming Messiah who will rescue his people from life under the sun so that the author's depiction of God falls short of what the rest of scripture would say about God. Under the sun can mean a right confessional belief in God intermingled with a life of hypocrisy. This idea that we come in with a right system of belief and understanding of the gospel yet living for the now and the supremacy of self while professing a belief in eternity and the supremacy of Christ. And then lastly, it can mean under the sun, a limited perspective on life compared to God's comprehensive, all-knowing view of the world. This frustration of wanting the answers and yet knowing that God hasn't chosen to share that divine attribute of omniscience, of all-knowingness with us as his image bearers. All these ways of contemplating life under the sun show up at some point in the book of Ecclesiastes. Coming back to that question, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The author up to this point in the book has explored that question from a number of angles, having considered the the endless cycles of nature, the sun going up and coming down, the wind blowing in every direction, seeming to go nowhere, the world running in circles without any true sense of progress, 
having ventured on a personal quest to find happiness and meaning at the end of chapter one and and in chapter two by way of wisdom and pleasure and achievement, the author of Ecclesiastes not only comes up empty-handed, but despairing of life itself, giving his heart up to despair, to use the language of the book, forced to admit that the seasons that we go through in life are not ultimately in our hands, frustrated with his limited understanding of God's activity in the world, filled with unmet expectations as he looks out on a world uh, in which wickedness is pervasive so that even the safe places aren't truly safe, even his perception of God not altogether optimistic, fearful caution in God's presence, the best we can hope for going back to last week. This morning, the author continues to bring his observations of what it is to live life under the sun into view and he zooms in and focuses on money and possessions more than anything. If you pick up in chapter, eight, uh, chapter five, excuse me, verse eight, it says this. It says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He says, Don't be surprised by oppression and injustice. That's the world we live in, a world in which political leaders can't be trusted, out to preserve their own self-interest. Any multi-tiered structure just adding to the problem, creating multiple levels of corruption. Even verse nine leaves something to be desired. As most scholars see, one of two things that, that that particular verse is meant to communicate, neither very hopeful. Some understand it to mean that the best one can hope for in a politically corrupt system is food on the table. Others would go further and say, even so, you can't trust that the political leader of the the land in which you live isn't gonna take that food from you at any given point in time. And, And the truth of the matter is that both of those ideas fit really well with the rest of the book, which declares that the best you can hope for is the enjoyment of what you have in this vain life, and even that is not promised tomorrow though you may have it today. He goes on to say in verses 10 through 12, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. He says if you... If you love money, you'll never be satisfied with money. Your greed will lead you to pursue that which you'll never be able to obtain enough of to make you happy. The more you obtain, the more you'll want. It comes back to that John D. Rockefeller quote from a few weeks ago. When when once asked, how much money is enough money? At one point, the richest man in the world, his response, just a little bit more. It's a grasping at smoke. It's elusive. It's fleeting. Not only that, In the words of the the great theologian and hip-hop artist Biggie Smalls, a.k.a. the notorious B.I.G., mo money, mo problems. The more loot you get, the more looters show up, verse 11, right? And and with that comes more worry and stress that that make it hard to sleep at night, verse 12. So that the, the only true advantage in seeing your wealth is in seeing your wealth and possessions with your eyes, verse 11. Because at least that means you've already obtained it rather than chasing after it. The the author continues to drive home that point to emphasize the troubles that come with wealth by providing an example in verse 13. He says this, he says, there is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt 
and those riches were, sold, were lost in a bad venture. And, and he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also, verse 16, is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. The author of Ecclesiastes tells the story of a man who accumulated great wealth only to lose it in in a bad business venture, which is to say essentially that not only do we live in a world in which you can go from rags to riches, but from riches to rags in a blink, toiling your life away with all of your might only to die empty-handed with nothing to leave behind to those you love. And even if you don't lose what you acquire in life, that's the best you can hope for, to leave it all behind because you don't get the luxury of taking any of it with you to the other side. So that either way, you lose it, he says. Everything you devote your life to acquiring. The author of Ecclesiastes sees that as a grievous evil, a sickening tragedy would be another interpretation. Verse 16, he asks, what gain is there for him who toils for the wind? A reframing of the original question back in chapter one, verse three. And the answer, there is no gain. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It can only produce a life of vexation and sickness and anger, verse 17. You begin to see that the book of Ecclesiastes is not progressing towards something more hopeful and optimistic as it moves toward its end. Contrary to popular belief, the author just continues to repackage his resigned outlook on life under the sun. He says in verse 18, Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Do you see what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying here? He's essentially saying, in light of the troubles associated with the love of money and money itself, the best that we can hope for under the sun is to be distracted from the vanity of it all. Whatever wealth and possessions you have, he says, along with the power to enjoy those things, consider it a gift from God, verse 19, but notice the reason for the gift in verse 20. For... Here's why it's a gift of God to have these things and to enjoy them. For, verse 20, he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. And, And this is not a joy of the Lord that we're talking about because if you look at verse 18, he's talking about the goodness and fittingness to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. Verse 19, uh, to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. And you'll see in chapter six the same, that this joy, uh, this occupation with joy in the heart has to do with things, not with, ultimately with God. The, the, what he's saying is, if God has given you wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them, it's so that you might not reflect on the misery of life under the sun so that you might be distracted from the vanity of it all. This is why I've been advocating from the very beginning that these calls to enjoyment are not the solution to the problem. 
but rather the author's resigned conclusion. That the best that we can hope for under the sun is for God to distract us by giving us wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them so that we might not spend too much time thinking about the vanity of life. Which if that's true, Peachtree City is a great place to live if that's the best we can hope for. He says, consider the distraction a gift because not everyone has that luxury in life. Look at verse one of chapter six. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, he says. It is a grievous evil. He says it's not enough to acquire wealth and possessions and honor. You're dependent upon God to give you the power to enjoy these things. And sometimes he says, God doesn't. Without which distraction from the vanity of life is not an option. And what a sickening tragedy that is, he says. You need God to give you both wealth and the power to enjoy it in order to know the luxury of distraction from the futility of life in this broken world. Verse three, he comes at it from another angle. He says, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place, he says. He presents us with the same problem as verses one and two of chapter six, having good things, but not the power given by God to enjoy them. The difference is in verses one and two, the focus is on wealth, possessions, and honor. Here in verses three through six, the focus is on longevity of life and many children, both considered blessings throughout the course of the Old Testament. He says, better to be a stillborn child than to have the good things of life, but not the power to enjoy them. And, and ultimately, the distinction between the two is that the stillborn child, he says, finds rest, verse five. Meaning that in the contrast, restlessness is the lot of those who have good things, but not the power to enjoy them. Again, it all comes back, chapter five, verse 20, to this idea of distraction. He's essentially saying we're desperate for good things like money, possessions, honor, longevity of life, many children, the blessings of this world, and we're desperate for God to give us the power to enjoy those things so that ultimately we don't spend too much time restlessly thinking about the vanity of life, which is exactly what the author of Ecclesiastes has been doing for five chapters now, right? He's trying to protect us from his miserable experience. You don't have to live that way. Rather, you can know the luxury of distraction from the futility of life in this world. Verse seven, in closing out this morning's passage, he says this, somewhat of a summary statement of everything that he said up to this point this morning. He says, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. He, he summarizes with driving home this point that satisfaction in this world is elusive. He says it doesn't matter if you're wise or foolish. 
Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It says, better to focus on what you have, the sight of the eyes, than what you don't have, the wandering of the appetite. This too, though, he says, is vanity and a striving after wind, verse nine. He says, even what you already possess cannot give you the satisfaction that you long for. At best, the hope of distraction from the vanity of life under the sun, and that only if God gives you the power to enjoy what you already possess. I promise there's something hopeful, but we do have to leave the book of Ecclesiastes to find it. Coming back to a quote from earlier in this series, Peter Kraft, philosopher and university professor at Boston College, says, if, you, if you're typically modern, your life is like a mansion with a terrifying hole right in the middle of the living room floor. So you paper over the hole with a very busy wallpaper pattern to distract yourself. But suppose you find a rhinoceros in the middle of your house, he says. The rhinoceros is wretchedness and death. How in the world can you hide a rhinoceros? Easy, he says. Cover it with a million mice. Multiple diversions. Going back to chapter five, verse 20, presents us with a question. Is God really nothing more than the great giver of mice? the greatest expression of his grace evidenced in his distracting us from the vanity of life in this messed up world? Because if that's the best we can hope for, then yes and amen, happiness will always be just beyond our grasp, just beyond our reach. The world is filled with people chasing after one thing after another after another to fill the emptiness, to give meaning to life. Even us Christians get caught up in that empty chase, do we not? Believing that this job or that relationship or this next acquired possession will do the trick. C.S. Lewis in his Mere Christianity says, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they can never quite keep their promise. If I find, he says, in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And I would take that a step further and say that we're made for the God of that other world. The only one who can truly and eternally satisfy us. Listen to how the early church father Augustine once described his conversion. Some of you have seen this quote before. He says, suddenly it became to me to be without the sweets of folly. What I once feared to lose was now a delight to dismiss. You, O oh God, turned them out and entered in to take their place, sweeter than any pleasure. Or, or how about the old Scottish pastor Samuel Rutherford, who says, there's enough in our Lord's kitchen to satisfy all his children and enough wine in his cellar to quench all their thirst. Hunger on, he says, for there is food and hunger for Christ. Never go from him without bothering him for a dish full of hungry desires until he feeds you. And, and make no mistake, he's not talking about bringing to Jesus a dish full of everything we long for more than Jesus. He, like the author of Ecclesiastes, knows better than that. He's talking about bringing hungry souls to the table of the king, believing that the king himself can truly satisfy us. And by the way, if you're not a Christian, just to be clear, that, that is something that money cannot buy, that kind of happiness. There is no currency that can purchase that kind of happiness for you. There, there's not enough moral currency in the universe to afford a seat at the, the table of the all-satisfying God. 
That that seed is for those who acknowledge they could never afford it in the first place. It's for those who acknowledge Jesus to be their only hope. The one who lived the sinless life that we could never live, bringing all of the accomplishments that we could never bring to the feet of God. The one who died the sinner's death that, that we deserve to die, bearing the shame of every one of our sinful failures in our place, including our wandering, insatiable appetites, including our, our contentment with distraction as an anesthetic. Jesus died for that too. Isn't that good news? Hey, you and I are, are invited to the banqueting table of the all-satisfying God, whether for the first time or the thousandth time, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the the person and finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Remember the, the woman at the well, John 4, very famous passage of scripture. Jesus encounters her, engages her in a conversation, and ultimately says to her, you can keep drawing water from this man-made well over and over and over again, and you'll just continue to find yourself thirsty over and over and over again meant to, to present to us the question, what are the man-made wells that I drink from? What are the broken cisterns that I run to hoping to find satisfaction only to be left empty again? Jesus says, I got, I got something better than that. I can give you living water, the all-satisfying presence of the all-satisfying God, and you'll never be thirsty again if you keep running to that well for your ultimate satisfaction. This is a God to whom those who have spent their resources in the failing pursuit of happiness can come and he offers in himself consummate satisfaction and joy if we will run to him. If you're not a Christian, I'd present you with this question. Do you find, to use C.S. Lewis's language, do you find in yourself a desire which no experience in this world can ultimately and unceasingly satisfy? And if the answer is yes, I would say it's because you were meant to have that desire fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Turn to him. Give your life to him. Turn from the broken well to the, the well filled with living water. Jesus himself, who at great cost to himself, has made a way for you to sit at the banqueting table of the all-satisfying God forever. It's, it's unbelievable. And if you are a Christian, even those who, of us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good face temptation, right? The temptation to turn elsewhere. Though Jesus' table is spread with everything we need to, to satisfy us, to bring us true and lasting joy. So that... I would argue many of the disappointments that you and I have encountered this very week are rooted in our own forgetfulness. That we forget, we pursue our, our fulfillment and happiness in things other than Jesus. I can't go on a beach trip and not come back with an illustration apparently. Yesterday, we're, we're driving back home after a week down in the Gulf, one of our great getaways. We love doing it every year down there from last Sunday afternoon on through yesterday morning, my youngest daughter, Quinn, um, broke into tears as we're driving over the bridge, not even two minutes away from the condo. I don't want to leave the beach. I want to live here forever. And she repeated that over and over again, the car ride home. My wife taking in memories with, with her dad wondering how many more years of that we have left. And 
By the time we got to the end of the trip, I'm calling up Johnny's Pizza to get a four cheese with pepperoni ready to go as we pull into the parking lot to try to like create some happiness at the end of this trip. Like Peachtree City's great too, guys. Like be happy. Come on, quit gnashing teeth, quit weeping, trying to muster up some sort of satisfaction and happiness. And the truth is, like, we could be in that condo for 20 years. And if there were a point that we had to depart, we'd be sad that day. If we're meant to find ultimate satisfaction in that. I forgot. I forgot too this week. So my heart was heavy and sad yesterday. I forgot Psalm 107 verse nine. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things.